I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Good evening and welcome to Little Atoms. Little Atoms is a talk show about ideas. Each show features a guest from the world of science, journalism, politics, academia, human rights or the arts and conversation. If the show has a dominant and recurring theme, then it coalesces around the ideas of the Enlightenment, by which we mean freedom of expression, free inquiry, rationalism, scepticism, the scientific method, secular humanism and liberal democracy. Our guests bring ideas that are challenging, sometimes controversial, but always interesting. Our guest this week is Adam Curtis, so I will hand over to Neil Denny to introduce him. Thanks, Padraig. Adam Curtis is a producer, writer and director of television documentaries such as Pandora's Box, The Mayfair Set, The Century of the Self, The Power of Nightmares and The Trap. Adam's programmes, though always about serious issues, maintain a sense of a tongue-in-cheek humour and are characteristic in their extensive use of archive footage. In his filmmaking, Adam strives to find meaningful connections between historical situations and often focuses on the impact of different ideologies have had on modern society. Adam, thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Um, I've had the pleasure of watching virtually your entire over this week in, 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 in um, preparation for this show, thanks to, thanks to the magic that is Google Videos. Um, what are the things that, uh, that emerges when you do watch your whole body of work is the reoccurrence of certain ideas and themes. There are ideas of how the big ideas in the past have been used to order society and often these include ideas of science and progress and how these have been misused perhaps. Tell, tell us about when you first sort of got interested in, in this theme. I, what I think I'm most interested in is how power works in society, how it, or how more correctly, how power is exercised, but in ways that we sometimes don't see it, especially in institutions uh, that appear not to have anything to do with politics and power as we traditionally know it. That's what I'm really interested in. I mean, I think much of our journalism today focuses far too exclusively on the idea that power simply comes through politics as it's traditionally defined in places like Westminster. And I've always been fascinated in looking how, at how institutions such as scientific institutions areas like consumerism, have, and even the way we think and feel about ourselves, have power flowing through it and trying to look at where that comes from. Um, I've grown up, and I've been making programmes, about an age where you have moved from, I suppose, an idea of progress as given to you by large institutions to the idea of progress as the individual fulfilling themselves. And that, that was the big shift, and I've been trying, I suppose, to trace the way power has shifted from being caught, sort of given to us through the institutions, through the way it's come through us, or we feel it, without really quite realising it. I think that's what my films are about. Well, and you, you can, you can you can see that journey right across, the head, right across the body of work, and, and the, the trap, you know, the last series that was, that was broadcast, basically brings us to the position where people now have this idea of individuality, but... Well, I think it's sort of got stuck. Yeah, that's, that's, a, to be that's the thing I'm sort of looking for. We're at that position where, where there is just sort of banality. and there's, you know, But it's, there's more no... than, it's more than banal. What's happened is that you had an idea, which in a way was quite a heroic idea, that each individual could be themselves, could express themselves and become better people. In fact, what I was trying to trace in the trap was that what happened in that process is that you shifted the idea of, of risk away from institutions and onto the person themselves. And in that process, what people began to do is, far from expressing themselves, began to monitor themselves to see whether they are the correct definition of the individual, whether it's in psychology or in the way that they eat, in what they listen to. 
how they feel and how they behave. And they begin to search for ways of, and are given ways of monitoring that as individuals. And that paradoxically leads them to trying to become like what they think is the right individual, which actually leads to homogeneity. And I, really that's what I'm tra I was tracing in that series, I think, was how that idea of total expressiveness, being yourself, paradoxically in many ways has led to a growing homogeneity and to a sense of sort of stasis in society. It may be breaking up now as we enter an economic crisis and politicians discover that they have power, institutions have power, and that's the way to shape the world. The idea of the self may change, but I don't know. I mean, I feel it's too early to tell. So does, <coughs> just clarifying that in my own head, does, does, in your view, individualism and the fetishization of individualism mean that ideas, big ideas, suffer to an extent, that there's no, there's no drive for big ideas when everything is about the, the single personal entity. Yes, I mean, I think we, we are... I mean, it's a very complicated relationship, I, but I think it's, it's a commonplace to say that we now live in a world where there are no ideas that can inspire people and take them other, to another place than where they are, because mm -hmm. where they are is what they are supposed to be in the world of, of the hyper-individualism, mm -hmm. which is where we are. That's it. I think there are other factors. I mean, I think we are deeply distrustful of big ideas because the experience of the last 100 years is, is to tell us that big ideas often lead to disastrous consequences. So we're also suspicious of it. But I do think there is a relationship between the idea of where do you want to go to today, that it's up to you to choose it rather than to be told it by broadcasters and other elites because elites are bad that tends to trap you into your own definition of where you want to go today well if you're on your own it's quite difficult to work out a utopian vision where you can ch to which the whole of society can go to so you tend to become trapped in that and you start to look around for other people's definitions of where do you want to go to mm -hmm. today? And you get this sense of homogeneity, but you also get this sense of stasis because everyone begins to look at each other. I mean, in the trap, I looked at the origins of the checklists for psychological disorders, like behavioral com uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, all those ones. The psychologists and the doctors I talked to who developed them and used them were quite open in saying, well, actually, once we put them forward to people, people rushed to, to classify themselves because they wanted to know whether they were normal or not. Mm -hmm. Because in an age of individualism, there aren't the institutions who are going to give you a sense of whether you're normal or not. So people rushed for these things, began to tick, oh, yes, I am, no, I'm not, yes, I am. And having found out whether they were disordered or not, tried to behave or medicate themselves back to the mean, to the normal. Well, paradoxically, that leads to, again, homogeneity. So the idea of individualism leads to homogeneity and stasis in this particular idea of individualism. But it may be cracking. Mm. I don't know. This is something we've talked about a few times quite recently on the show, the idea of the medicalisation of everyday complaints and, and how this sort of has benefited the, the, the you know, big farmer and that. And... Um, well, I suppose what, what's what's interesting here is this 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 very idea that there's you know the idea of not what is normal is 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 it's just such a loose concept anyway. There is no there there, there isn't the normal. So the very idea that they, that they were people could go along and see from one of these checklists and 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 be able to be given a concrete idea of what normal should be, I suppose, is 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 quite an interesting new thing. Well, it is deeply ironic that in an age in which is supposed to be full of wild, expressive individualism, that we seek 
a, an agreed definition of normality. But that's the process that those checklists have led to. Mm. Uh, one <coughs> thing that, that um, I've kind of parroted in my own work quite a bit recently is the idea, of, I mean, when you mentioned the, the word you want to go to the idea, which is was, it's typified, I suppose, by, um, by use of the internet um, and how people use the internet. Um, one thing I've always kind of been working with thought is that what we're looking at with the internet is because there is so much information out there the, that the editorial role has shifted from the editor in some sense, from the news organisations in some senses, to the to the user. The, the user has to decide themselves what they think is worthwhile and what they think isn't worthwhile. And the, and the, um, the news organisations and the bigger institutions seem to, um, seem to be quite keen on this. What, why is this? Well, you're right. The, the news organisations, including my own organisation, the BBC, have embraced the internet. I mean, sometimes for very, very good reasons, but they have embraced it for other, sometimes I think slightly suspicious reasons. And you're right. It is this idea, which is one of the utopian dreams of the internet, that it is a way of getting rid of the old elites telling you what you should listen to, what you should read, scheduling it for you, finding out stuff and telling you you should know it. Instead, you are offered a cornucopia of stuff and you create through the new ways of linking information your version of where do you want to list, what do you want to listen to today, mm-hmm. what do you want to watch today. It's a utopian idea of democracy, which the media has embraced. I think, actually, uh, what, what it's led to although this is dying away now, user-generated content, which is where you, the user, tell us what is good or what you want to watch, well, it leads to absurdity. I mean, it it actually leads to people who've already seen something giving it to us so we can show it to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, there is an argument that then <laughs> their friends and people who are like them that they don't know can also see them and they would like it. But there is a dark and rather sardonic side of myself which thinks because I do work in a broadcasting organisation and I know a lot of broadcasters, most journalists have run out of knowing what's going on in the world, Mm -hmm. including myself. None of us really know what's going on. And as this crisis that we're going through at the moment accelerates, it is clear that no one knows. Mm -hmm. No one knows why oil was 160 and is now down to $50 a barrel. And they have embraced this idea of of media democracy, of user-generated content, as a way, sort of smokescreen, to disguise that fact. It's like, well, we don't know, you tell us. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I'm deeply suspicious of it. I think, it's, I think it's fading away because, quite frankly, what people sent in to us, and that is not rude to the, to the viewers or to the listeners, was stonkingly banal because the whole reason why journalism was invented in the first place is that we have the time uh, and the money and the, the power of an organisation to go places find things out, use the power and influence of the organisation to actually push through doors, find things out, bring it back and tell you it and allow you to make up your mind about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I try and do in my films. I put things out there. You may not agree with it, but it's there to be discussed. That's what a good broadcasting organisation should do. And I just, I mean, you can't really blame the journalists. No one does know what's going on at the mm-hmm. moment, but... I am just suspicious of the internet in that way. I mean, I think there's a, there is a lot of questions about the utopianism of the internet at the moment, which I think, again, this crisis may begin to crack open. Yeah. I think there's, there's also I mean, a problem um, with the internet in that it's, it's awfully difficult <coughs> to measure success on the internet. And the, the way people measure success in the moment is on hit rates. So 
stuff that gets read, no matter how good or bad. I mean, it's normally either very, quite banal stuff or, you know, stupidly controversial stuff gets circulated and read most often. I think we haven't found a way to formulate what's a good internet thing and what's a bad internet no, thing. No, I actually don't have a problem with that. I mean, I think one of the good things about the internet is it is chaotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think actually in an age where people don't know what's, sorry, those in power don't know what's going on, you just go in there and you, and and, and it becomes this, Mass the soup of information and rumor, and in a funny sort of way, that's more real. Yeah. In its fragmentedness, it's sort of like it's the impressionism of our time. You know, when the impressionists came along, they said, "Look, people are now." In a way, you had a rise of individualism back then in the nineteenth century, and they were trying to actually put down on canvas and in words what it felt like to actually experience the world, rather than to be told it by great stories of statesmen. And in a way, the internet is, is a bit like that. It gives you an impressionistic, fragmented phantasmagoria, which is a bit like the way we live our daily lives. The trouble is with that is that that phantasmagoria is fantastic. It's, it is like a sort of dream. We do live our, our lives in a dream. We don't look at the world like a realist painting. But it's limiting. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. It's just a series of fragmented images, which we then go home and make stories out of. And those who write stories do journalism, make films, take that stuff and make stories out of it. And no one's doing those stories at the moment. So the internet is a great interim, chaotic, almost sort of super real version of what the world is like today. And I think probably if, if we can archive it, people will go back and look at it, much as we do impressionistic, impressionist paintings. But what's waiting is a new way of put, pulling all that stuff together which makes sense and makes people look at the world in a different way and can take them forward. Uh, uh, and I don't know whether, whether that's going to happen or whether it's not, but, you know, it's, you should dive into the chaos and love it for what it is at the moment. <laughs> the way you've just described the internet there sounds actually like a description of your own filmmaking. You mean I'm narcissistically projecting myself onto the world of the internet? Well, apart from that, just the idea that, you know, you use this sort of, fast cutting juxtaposition of images to create a not necessarily a, a narrative that has more in common with dreams than than where you know you, the, the way you use the fan footage that you do um well let, perhaps we should uh, my, my question is let's talk about you know how did you develop that that way of filmmaking why you know because it's you know it's, it's extremely distinct well i mean the, the sort of uh, honest answer is, of, is often out of complete desperation because I just had this idea when I started, actually when I started doing that series you mentioned called Pandora's Box, is I wanted to do a series of films about how science had been used, not about science, but about how ideas from science had been taken up by powerful elites and used to try and shape the world and the consequences that flowed from that. The trouble is with that is there wasn't very much to illustrate it with literally and I got to the point with that series where in cutting rooms late at night I literally was in tears because I couldn't do it. It was so boring. And I got to... I was making a film about monetarism because I thought monetarism could be looked... which Mrs Thatcher brought in in the 80s could be looked at as a scientific idea which was then misappropriated. And I... You know, it's the most abstract idea. Economics is extremely dull. I mean, I know it's not to economists but it is dull. (laughs) You know, you float away and you can't... you think you've got it and you haven't got it. So I just started making jokes out of bits of movie footage. I found that there was a a film, an old movie, called The League of Gentlemen from the 50s, which 
uh, I could accurately and rather humorously cut against one of Mrs Thatcher's ministers called Keith Joseph, who I'd interviewed. And it was sort of, like, cruel, but it was affectionately cruel, and it was funny, and it sort of brought it alive, and it was out of desperation. And out of that, I began to realise what you could do is pull ideas together by that collage technique. It also is a way of signalling to people that I am... This is my essay. This isn't the news at ten. This isn't... The, the old elites telling you this is this isn't civilization. This is me tr pulling together things and saying, "Have you thought of looking at it this way?" And and in a way, you are sort of showing the structure by saying, "Look, you can join this. You can join this. The facts are true, but I'm I'm then arguing something on the top of that, which is it makes you look at the world this way. So it signals that. I mean, that's a slightly pretentious view of it. Actually, it's, it's often born out of desperation. Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, the filmmaker Jonathan Meads was was on the show, and um, he's been on a number of times. And although on on the surface your film's obviously quite different, he he has this thing where he uses humour. It's a serious subject, and he and he and he uses sort of quite knockabout humour. And he talks about how this idea that people mistake serious and solemnity and, and they mistake the, 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 the idea that you can't be serious and funny at the same time. And I wonder what, what, what you think of that yourself. Well, I think that's a ridiculous position. I mean, I'm a great admirer of him. I think he's really good. Um, because he, just, he does just that. And I think a lot of our journalism here and in America even more suffers from such dead seriousness, which actually makes it really boring. You often wonder why they make it economics so boring. Because you have these really, really important ideas which do shape the world. I mean, I know there are other forces that shape the world, but ideas are very important. And you sometimes feel they don't really want to explain it, and they make it boring. No, he's quite right. Humour is very funny. And also, it's often very useful in uh, having a go at those in power and, and actually pulling the poison of fear about big institutions. It, it, it's a very, very useful thing as well. I want to go back to when we were talking about the, um, the sort of chaos of the of, of the internet and what Podrick raised with this idea about there not being an editor. And um, well, I'll start this off by saying I, f I found the rather a, quite a, what I thought was quite a surprising quote on on an interview you did with the Register, which said that um, BBC executives are often surprised that your films are popular with younger viewers, and I think that sort of feeds into the you know this idea that they're, they're the people that run, the run TV companies don't think that young people can engage with with difficult ideas, and you know, are not interested in in in, in the big ideas. But it also ties into the fact when I've when I've gone onto the gone onto the web researching you, your your stuff seems to be very popular at the same time with young people that are very interested in conspiracy theories and that sort of and, and that sort of thing and. We've often talked on the show about how that sort of mindset comes out of the chaos of the internet and, and about you know how, how the internet has caused conspiracy theories to sort of spread. And the reason I've raised this is that because uh, you, you have quite you know a, a, a robust attitude to the idea of conspiracy theories, which which chimes chimes quite a lot with mine. So I'd like to, I'd like to talk about that. You you're right, much you... more of a subscriber to the the cock up theory. <laughs> or the, the 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 laws of unintended consequences rather than the idea of conspiracy theories. Would that be right? 
I think most conspiracy theories tend not to be right because they are simplifications. I think what's interesting, though, is to look at the history of conspiracy theories, recent conspiracy theories. They really emerged in their big form. I mean, obviously, Kennedy is important. But all their X-Files stuff comes up from the early 90s when you got the collapse of the last big ideas to be pushed, the big narratives of history. And in their, in the absence of them came conspiracy theories or, or what, what would be called alternative narratives of history. And really, that's what took over in this age of individualism. Now, in many ways, they're entertaining ways of having a go at those in power. You can see, you can see why people do them. And of course, then the, the events of September the 11th seem sort of just accelerated that. And then the Internet accelerated it. I mean, I think, to be honest, they are a consequence of the failure of having any sense of big stories. They are a consequence of hyper-individualism. They are a consequence of the Internet. They're just there. What I think is most interesting about the conspiracy theory in its most recent manifestation is, is something that people haven't really noticed, is that the elites in society who are on the retreat at the moment because they really don't know what's going on and they haven't got another story have actually seized on the word conspiracy theory and have mutated it so that they can actually take it and put it as a label on anyone who just questions their power and whilst I agree with you I think most conspiracy theories practically all of them that I've ever looked into are complete rubbish fantasies and simplistic infantilism of a sort of narcissistic age what I think is really interesting is the way those in power, in their classic way, have grabbed that thing and are now using it to their own advantage because they're basically saying, if, you, if they say you're a conspiracy theorist, they're saying you're a nutbag, don't listen to the person. And, and they're using it quite ruthlessly. I've noticed it. Drawing back um, again to the internet, because I just know it's something you wanted to mention and we've got a couple of minutes. Um, there is chaos on the internet, but the one element that does seem to know what's going on is the, um, well, the people who own it to an extent. Just well, the, I, think, um, yeah. no, I, mean, I think that's one of the, the great paradoxes of our time, which I'm, I'm actually working on at the moment, is that those who are the promoters of the internet, the boosters, the, the people who put forward the utopian dream of the internet, and those who basically run Silicon Valley, are arch-individualists. They portray the internet as a sort of playground in which every individual can just take this cornucopia of stuff and invent their own identity, do whatever they want with it, and it's a new form of democracy without hierarchies of power. If you actually go and examine what their machines do, especially in their marketing, they use this, I haven't quite worked it out yet, it comes from this thing called Bayesian logic. But their machines can read your behavior, not as an expressive individual, it doesn't mm -hmm. care about your emotions, it looks at your behavior online, your clicks, and then through mathematical processes, it correlates them and makes what they call inferrals. They infer things and build up a profile of what you are likely to do. Mm -hmm. That The thing you, you're probably aware of on Amazon, of if you like this, then you'll like yeah, that, comes from this. <clears throat> they say that people actually, if you go and talk to these marketeers, they're completely open about it. They say people are very, very, very predictable. Mm -hmm. They fall it. We can, we can look at everyone's behavior objectively, almost like old market researchers used to do before focus groups and psycho graphics came along and say from these behaviours and these correlations we can predict exactly what this person can do. Yeah. And, the, and, and it's, they're getting very sophisticated uh, 
Gmail, which is a very fashionable email amongst quite a lot of web buddies, it, it, it actually reads your phrases mm -hmm. and can make correlations and infer things and your behavior. It's a fascinating thing because it's a completely contradictory view of what human beings are, how they behave, to what these boosters actually portray yeah. the internet as. And it is yet another of these paradoxes. Uh, I mean, I noticed from my research that uh, the Obama campaign used it. It's called micro-targeting or behavioral targeting. They used it in their campaigns, brought in by Karl Rove in 2004 in the Bush election, and now used in the Obama election, it pays no attention to focus groups. It doesn't ask people what they think, what they want. It looks at their behavior, who they connect with, who they correlate with, and what they say to each other online. Mm -hmm. And from that works out particular policies that you will like. It's treating you in a way, I think, almost like a behaviorist would do, a B.F. Skinner, as just you're a black box. You do this, then they do that. And but what's even more astonishing is how simplified the categories are. Yeah you're very predictable, which raises rather interesting questions. To what extent is individualism a myth of this age of financial credit? Mm -hmm. Possibly. Mm -hmm. I've no idea, but it just it tickles <laughs> in the back of my brain. <laughs> it's bringing us back to the homogeneity idea again, isn't it? I, yes, I am rather interested in, in, in... What I'm really interested in is whether what we see as wild individualism is actually what was staring at us in the face is complete homogeneity. That yeah. We may actually be living in one of the most homogenous ages whilst we think that it's an age of wild self-expression. And I, I, I mean, it's too early to tell, but I, I sometimes wonder whether in 50 years' time people will look back at us in the way we look at those photographs of people in bars in the 1930s where they're all wearing the same hats and the same <laughs> suits. And we see it as like we're little expressive creatures who are all different. Maybe they'll look back at us and think we're not, because actually, wherever you start to look at it, like with the psychological categories, everyone is seeking to be like everyone else, whilst at the same time pretending to be wild individuals. I mean, I'm just as bad as everyone else, but I just wonder. Mm -hmm. That's a good point to end on, a good thought to chew over. Adam, thanks very much for being on the show. Pleasure. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.